good to be with you again. Uh, it's been a few months since uh, we've been here and uh, lots of new faces, which is a blessing to see. Um, and we continue to regularly pray for God's work here in North Arlington. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. I begin with the question. Does God sleep? Does God sleep? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, it does speak of an account where Jesus is on the boat with his disciples in a storm. And in Matthew 8, beginning in verse 24, it says that the boat became swamped with waves as Jesus was asleep. The disciples went to wake him saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? And he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? As wave after wave rocked the boat, the disciples fret, and Jesus slept. He, as a human man, needed sleep. Sleep has been called God's generous gift to humanity. In Psalm 127, verse 2, it says that God gives his beloved sleep. Sleep is perhaps physically the most underrated physical need for a healthy living. If you deprive your body of sleep, it can have severe consequences, impairing cognitive function causing mood disturbances, depression, chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. It can lead to accidents, injuries, decreased productivity, and increased misunderstandings. As a human being, Jesus' physical body needed sleep. But I ask again the question, does God sleep? Psalm 121 verse 4 seems to give a definitive answer. It says, he, indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This verse emphasizes that God is constantly vigilant. The scriptures teach us that, that God is always awake, that he is always active. However, it's also equally clear in the scripture that by human perception, it appears to us at times as if God is sleeping. When he doesn't show up, when he doesn't appear in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our anxieties. In Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus sleeps during the storm, it was because he was physically exhausted. However, that sleeping also taught the disciples a valuable lesson about faith in the midst of trials. Like the disciples on the boat that day, in Psalm 140, I'm sorry, Psalm 44, which we're looking at today, it's the perception of the psalmist that God was asleep. That is to say, it appeared as if God was not alert to the peril that was coming upon the nation. I'm going to begin, we're going to go through the whole psalm, but just initially, before we pray, just going to read the last four verses where the psalmist calls upon God to wake up. Let's look at Psalm 44, verses 23 through 26. 
Psalm 44, 23. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, Lord, as this word that is inspired by you to, for the purpose of edifying your people would accomplish exactly that today in our midst. That you would encourage and strengthen and convict and comfort and do all that your Holy Spirit would do with your word today. Conforming us to the image of your son. Teach us today by your spirit in the weakness of my human words, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring this word and make it alive in every heart here today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Psalms is believed to have been compiled during the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. Though written at an earlier date, the Psalms were compiled during that time. And it's believed that Psalm 42, 43, and 44 have been purposely arranged during Israel's exile to encourage the people of God to worship God even while they didn't have a temple, to worship God in the midst of their hopeless exile. Now, if you look with me to the title, Psalm 44 is entitled to the choir mask. Uh, to, to the choir master. So it's a song written for, to be sung. And then it says a maskil or a meditation. So there's a teaching in the psalm. And then it says of the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah are indeed the same. It's believed, are they believed the descendants of those who rebelled against Moses. The, the Korah in, in the wilderness who rebelled against Moses. Apparently his sons, his children, fared a lot better than Korah himself. So this is a song as well as a teaching. It begins almost as if the author had been reading the previous two psalms. In Psalm 42 and 43 is that repeated chorus. Uh, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Repeated three or four times over those two psalms. Here the downcast are in turmoil and they find hope by remembering God's good intentions for his people. The context in which the sons of Korah wrote the lyric to Psalm 44 can't be determined exactly. Um, we know that it was sung during the diaspora, the Jewish, when the Jewish community were in exile in Babylon. But it was most likely written at an earlier time in the nation's history when the nation found itself in turmoil. There are, have been a number of um, occasions that have been suggested. But the scenario that I prefer is actually found in 2 Kings 22 and 23 and 2 Chronicles 35, when Israel was in a season of revival. Israel was being blessed under the renewals and reforms under King Josiah. If you want to turn to 2 Chronicles 35, I'll read a, a portion there to get an idea. Again, this is speculation, but it might be very well, could be, the context in which Psalm 44 was penned. 
Josiah, if you remember, if you know your history, was one of the few good kings in Israel. He encouraged the nation to reform and return to the keeping God's law. He was even respected by the kings that were around him. In 2 Chronicles 35, beginning in verse 20, this is the story. It says, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the, Ephra- uh, on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet them. But he sent envoys to him, saying, what have you to do with each uh, sorry, what have we to do with each other, king of Judah? This is the king, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt speaking to the king of Israel, Josiah. What do we have to do with each other? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, he tells him. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Verse 22, nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in a second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They have made, they they, they have, uh, sorry, they made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. The context of Psalm 44 may allude to this event. And I believe the psalm, perhaps, is the lamentation that's spoken of in 2 Chronicles 35, verse 25, where all the singing men and singing women are lamenting the death of Josiah. As you read this story, whether in 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, it appears that under King Josiah, the nation is serving God blamelessly. And this aligns with the psalm, as we're going to see. Let's look at the text, Psalm 44. Begins with the community trusting their downcast souls to God. They're doing, uh, they're doing this first by rehearsing God's sovereign and saving grace in the events of Israel's history. They're looking back. They're looking backward to God's goodness to them in the past. Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted these people, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. What he's doing here is comparing their own experience with the experience of their forefathers. God delivered them, but he's not delivering us. He's reminding God's people, Israel, that how God demonstrated his love toward the nation in the past. 
He remembers what God did. He says, we heard about the deeds you performed in those days. You drove out the nations with your hand. You drove them out by your own power. Your own right hand saved them. You delighted in them. And we need only uh, uh, loosely familiar with the history of the nation of Israel to know how God did that. For example, during the Exodus, when he delivered the people of God from their slavery through the Red Sea. And beyond that, how he continued to preserve his people and was faithful to them throughout the book of Joshua until they possessed the land of Canaan that God had given them. Then in verses 4 to 8, these past actions of God are applied to the people in the present. In verse 4, commentators believe that verse 4 is actually spoken by Israel's king, perhaps Josiah. Verse 4. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Now take note as I read verses 5 to 8, how the, the first four verses we saw, I'm sorry, the first three verses, we saw the word they and them. Now we're going to see us and we. He's talking about they and them in the past. Now it's us and we in the present. Psalm 44, verses 5 to 8. Through you. We push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor, in my, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. This teaching of Psalm 44, this meditation, communicates that the mighty acts of God from one generation to the next so that they're not forgotten. This is something that God prescribes for his people to do through every generation. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, God tells Israel, listen to the statutes that I'm teaching you that you may live. He says that you might take possession of the land. And in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 4, he says, uh, Moses writes this, he says, your eyes have seen what the Lord did. In Baal Peor, how the Lord destroyed from among you the men who followed Baal. How you held fast. And then in verse 9, he gives this prescription. And he says, you've seen God work through history. And in verse 9, he says, now only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget these things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. In other words, pass down God's word in your traditions, in your gatherings. Pass down God's word. To this day, the Jewish people do this. In the Bar Mitzvah, the 13-year-old boy commemorates his completion of the reading of the Torah. Or in the Passover Seder, it's designed for one generation to tell the next generation of God's great deliverance. Why? So that they do not forget we are charged as God's people to pass on our faith. Recounting God's faithfulness in the past is designed to instill confidence in the present. And that's what's going on here. These are a people who are in, tri who are in tribulation, in trial. But the, but, the, but the psalmist is basically saying, remember what God did so that you don't forget to praise him now in the midst of the trial. Verse 8, 
says again, in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. And that Selah means stop and think. Meditate. Meditate on the lyrics that were just sung. And verse 8 sets us up now with an anticipation. Think about it. God worked mightily in the past. We're going through a trial now. So certainly it's kind of setting us up for, for something to come. God worked. You worked this way. You always delivered in the past. You were always faithful in the past. Now in the midst of our trial, what's going to happen? It sets us up that God is going to come through with another victory and another saving act. But look at verse 9. A radical shift in the tone and the content. In verses 9 to 16, now the psalmist expresses bewilderment over the present state of his nation because it seems that God is not coming through. As I read verses 9 to 16, take note of the repetition of the word you. Six times the psalmist uses the word you in a reference to God. Psalm 44, 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our enemies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nation, a laughingstock among the people. And all day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and revile at the sight of the enemy in the Avenger. Wow, that was not what the first eight verses set you up to expect. Almost without a transition now, we move from this expectation of praise and victory to the reality of lamentation. As if to say, God, our, our fathers experienced victory because you love them. What happened to us? Why are you bringing defeat upon us? Do you love us less than they? Past victories put our enemies to shame, but now we're being shamed by our enemies. We're a reproach. Far from another victory, the psalmist feels that God has forsaken him or forsaken the nation. And he lays the blame for Israel's suffering and disgrace on God. God, you have done this. Now, we all love to quote the verse and love to rejoice in the verse. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? But how about when life turns and you feel like God is against you? The psalmist's pointed language leaves us with no doubt here that the source of the nation's suffering is God. God, the nations around us are mocking us. They're bringing us to shame. God, why did you put us in such a position? You have rejected us. You have disgraced us. You have made us like sheep to the slaughter. You have made us a byword among the nation. You have made us a laughing stock. I find it remarkable that this is in the Psalms at all. That a book that is known 
and written for the purpose of praising God would express disappointment in God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine coming to church and Brother Leo is up here and he says, I'm going to lead you in a, in a new song today. And then the words come up on the screen and you start singing. Oh, Lord, you have made us like sheep to the slaughter and scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors. I know of no hymn that goes like that. But that's what Israel sang here. They worshipped God even while his hand was against them. Now, some would come in here and say, this is a negative confession. But this is what faith is, brothers and sisters. Believing that God is good, even when it seems like his very hand is against you, even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, believing that God is good, believing that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, I ask you, as I read these verses, were you offended? Do you look at this and say, oh, these people are ungodly. How could they blame a good God for betraying a people who have done no wrong? Brethren, this psalm presents, in my opinion, an honest confrontation of God. There has to be a, a, a part in us at times we have emotions. We go through trials. We go through different. We're not stoic. This is an honest confrontation of God from one who knows he's sovereign. He's the source of everything. And even the source of this suffering that I'm going through. This expresses real feelings that people really feel when they're suffering. Consider how the emphatic statements of Psalm 44 demonstrate a high view of God, a strong view of God. God is not only sovereign in victory, brethren, but in defeat. Whatever he ordains is right. The problem with the defeat of the nation here is not that um, God lacks power. The problem with that, that God's people are suffering in this psalm is not that God can't stop it, but that God is actually the active force behind the tribulation that has befallen his people. Brethren, that's our sovereign God. That God offends some. He's not a God that merely reacts to calamity. Amos chapter 3 verse 6 says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Let me ask you, when calamity comes, when trials come, when difficult times come, who's to blame if the Lord has not done it? Are you going to blame Satan? You really want to put that kind of power in the hands of the devil, your adversary? Well, that is what some people say. Others say it's chance. It's chance. What a hopeless prospect that is. The idea that chance, all things, calamity comes by chance. Hopeless. 
But, you see, as difficult as it is for us, by acknowledging that God is the source of suffering, we're also acknowledging that He alone can fix it. To say that God has nothing to do with suffering is to take hope away from us as God's people. Because if we, if we know that that suffering is in His hands, in the sure hand of an almighty sovereign God, you can have hope. The only other three options, if it's not God, it's Satan, yourself, or chance. And do you really want to put suffering in the hands of any of those now, it's one thing if these people brought the suffering upon themselves because of their sin, but that's not the case. This is happening to the nation despite their faithfulness. Look at verse 17. Because up to this point, you might say, well, all right, they're going through suffering, but they brought it upon themselves. But look at verse 17. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our, our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Verse 20 is key. If we had forgotten your name, the name of our God, or, or spread our, out our hands to a foreign God, would God, not God, discover this? For he knows the secrets of our hearts. In our analysis of this text, we can't miss what an amazing jump in understanding this is for an Old Testament saint, the Old Testament saint who's writing this. Because all the Jews knew was the law. Throughout their history, all they knew was the blessings to the obedient and the cursings and exile come to the disobedient. They lived by Deuteronomy 28. And if you don't know Deuteronomy 28, that's about blessings and cursings. You do this, you'll be blessed. Blessing comes to the nation that obey the commandments. Don't obey and the expectation is defeat. Stray from his path, defeat. And this permeates the Torah, the law, and the prophets, and the entire Old Testament. You reap what you sow. That's what you get under the law. You reap what you sow. You get what you deserve. That's what the Old Testament teaches. That's, what the, that's where the Old Covenant leaves you. It leaves you with a life under the law where you get what you deserve. But then, also in the Old Testament canon, you have books like Job, for instance. Job was righteous, God declared him righteous. Job himself denied any disloyalty to God. Job was not suffering because of his sin. That's the whole story. You're going to be getting into it, God willing, next month. That's exciting. You're going to be studying the book of Job together with Pastor Damien beginning next month. But Job was not suffering for his sin. His suffering had to be explained another way. So like Job, the psalmist now in Psalm 44, writing on behalf of the nation, denies any disloyalty to God. And notice, it's not just outward. It's not just we're keeping the law. God, look at us, we're keeping the law. Even inwardly, the heart, look at verse 18. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So it's not just what we do, but even our heart. Look at verse 21. God, you know the secrets of our heart. 
These are a righteous people who are suffering. Why were they in such turmoil? Lord, you, we've been faithful, but you crushed us. We've remembered you, but you've forsaken us. We've been loyal, but you afflicted us. What are you going to say about this, brethren? Is there a place in your theology for this God? How is the legalistic voice inside that body of death of yours going to answer? Oh, they're just complaining sinners. They don't really understand what God is doing. Surely they must have done something wrong. They're, they're being prideful. They're not accepting responsibility. God is fair. He would never repay evil for good. You can't dismiss this psalm or the book of Job for that matter, or Ecclesiastes for that matter, or Psalm 88 and many other verses in the Old Testament, just saying, well, that, that's just write it off as the words of sinful men. This is God's word. God inspired Psalm 44 and in the book of praise, no less. If you dismiss it, you miss a wonderful new covenant truth that appears in the Old Testament. Judaism misses this. Legalism misses this. The prosperity gospel misses this. Jesus' own disciples missed it. In John chapter 9, with their Jewish legalistic mind, the disciples ask Jesus, when they see a man who was born blind, they ask him the question, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why did they ask that question? Well, they asked that question because suffering in their mind is a result of sin. You reap what you sow. It's the natural question to ask amid suffering. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The man's blindness was not connected to any sin, nor was it chance, nor was it Satan. His suffering, his blindness since birth, offered the opportunity for the work of God to be displayed by the Son of God. That's New Testament. That's, that is divinely revealed to the sons of Korah in Psalm 44, because their whole system was completely different. Psalm 44 is not often preached on. It's not a popular psalm. You can understand why. But it is quoted in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. And that, I'll come to it at the end, but I'll read it here. It's actually verse 22 that Romans 8 quotes. If you look at verse 22 of our psalm, it says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, the, to, to be slaughtered. I want you to focus in on those words. For your sake, Lord, we're being afflicted. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why? For your sake. We're innocent. We're faithful. We're martyrs. Why? For your sake. That is a thoroughly new covenant idea. Suffering for God's sake. It's all over the New Testament. Acts 5, verse 41, the persecuted apostles rejoice. Why? Because they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts 9, 16, called the rabbi Paul, saying, for I, uh, for I will show him when God calls Saul. 
So I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus told him ahead of time so that Paul could pre prepare near the end of his life, so that he could say at the end of his life that he's constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. He writes in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I am well content with weakness and insults and distress and persecution with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then it's not only Paul. Jesus says it in Matthew 10 about all of his disciples, including you and I. In Matthew 10, 22, he says, you will be hated for all for my name's sake. And then in verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The Bible, specifically the New Testament, tells you that suffering is a gift of God. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you for Christ's sake that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. This idea that has wormed its way into the church, that God only wills health and prosperity for his people, is an awful distortion of Christianity. It's not Christianity. God redeemed the world through suffering. Who are you going to put that into? The cross, who are you going to put that into the hands of Satan or chance? And I know we all know the errors of the prosperity gospel. We can name the names. We could dispute them. We could refute that false gospel. Many of us here can. But brethren, listen to me. Take this from, from the Lord if it be true. The essence of the prosperity gospel infects your faith. The essence of the prosperity gospel infects your faith. This is something that is found in every religion, from ancient religions to mythology to animism to pantheism, Hinduism, paganism to modern-day Catholicism. It's karma. It's in most primitive religions. That people are living their lives to try to please God so that they can get a blessing. I'm giving to get. Reaping and sowing. It's in every human religion. Cause, effect, religion. It's a nice, clean, simple system. Follow God, keep his commandments, and you'll be blessed. And that blessing will manifest itself in a healthy, wealthy life. But even our pagan philosophers of our day say, sing it, only the good die young. They know it. They know this to be true. And yes, the old covenant operates by these laws of sowing and reaping. It's all over the Old Testament. But then you have these anomalies. Psalm 44, Ecclesiastes. Much of the book of Proverbs, Job, Psalm 88, they all challenge that nice, clean system. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is mocked and despised. He's led to the slaughter 
but he didn't open his mouth. He's innocent. He trusted in God from the womb, but he was poured out like water. His heart melts like wax. They pierce his hands and feet. I could go on. But let's look at the last four verses of the psalm. In the last four verses, we have this corporate plea for God to wake up. Wake up from this apparent slumber. Deliver and restore the nation. These four verses contain four, peti- four, four petitions. Awake, rouse yourself, rise up, like we just sang, redeem us. Awake, rouse yourself, rise up, redeem us. Let's look at these verses again. Psalm 44, verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The nation of Israel is calling on God to respond not because they're so good, but what does he say? Redeem us. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. Redeem us, Lord, because of your commitment, your covenant faithfulness. Redeem us because we have a covenant relationship with him. Even though they don't fully understand the mystery of the suffering of the righteous, these are our people who are not without hope. They are calling upon God to restore them, to redeem them. The suffering they experienced hasn't produced this cynical resignation that suffering often does. That's often the result of suffering in in, in many people's lives, especially unbelievers. They just become cynical. They become bitter. They become angry people. They become a people because they don't have hope. They don't have hope in a God who would redeem and restore them. If not in this life, then in the next. The suffering they experience here is not producing some critical resignation, but it's a hope that God's final purpose is going to be this restored relationship. They live in a real world here. Things are not as they should be. They realize that, but nevertheless, they knew that their only hope for redemption was in this renewed relationship with God. So they pray, arise, Lord, redeem our nation because of your steadfast love. Psalm 44 expresses this tension between God's promises and his unfailing love. The present experience, I'm suffering, Lord, but you're faithful, Lord. And that is meant to encourage our faith in the midst of trials. Psalm 44 challenges us, challenges our view of God. It challenges our hope in God that he is sovereign over every trial in our lives. Let me close with some application from the psalm. First, as verses 1 1 to 3 do, so we ought to also regularly, regularly rehearse the mighty acts of God in our lives. We're, We're dependent upon the witness of the scriptures. We are to rehearse God's mighty acts in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is for. You know, it's not merely ancient history. Romans 15, 4 makes it clear that the things that were written back then are for our instruction so that we might be encouraged. 
So Psalm 44 is not just this personal reflection, and it's not just about the nation of Israel, but that psalm is used to comfort the nation when they're in exile in Babylon a hundred years later. It's, been, it's in the early church. The early church used this psalm to find comfort in the midst of their persecution. And Psalm 44 is and will continue to be a comfort for God's people even to the end of the age. Secondly, communicate God's mighty acts to the next generation. This is the command of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Teach the next generation. How do we do that? We come to church as one. We have preaching. We have Bible studies. We have Sunday school. We have testimonies, catechisms, family worship that continue to bear witness of what God has done from one generation to the next. Read biographies of great Christians who persevered to the end. Study characters of the Bible. Recount God's goodness to his people in the past and how he instills hope for our future. Thirdly, very important, we need Psalm 44. We need Job. We need Ecclesiastes, etc. We need them in the canon of Scripture because this is how God works in a fallen world. They help us to understand God's work in the midst of trials, in the midst of war, in the midst of cancer. Psalm 44 brings a balance to that presupposition how God always works this way, cut and dried. It was a few months ago that I was here and I preached Psalm 36 at that time. You may or may not recall, but what we saw in Psalm 36 was that the suffering that was in David's life was the result of his personal sin. Suffering came because of sin. And in that sermon, I exhorted you that we need to ask ourselves, when we're in a trial, is this some consequence of my sin? Is God chastening me? What lessons do I need to learn? How is God treating me like a child, disciplining me? Disciplining me. Psalm 44 balances that. And you need to have this in your toolbox of theology when you understand God. Because it, there are going to be times when you're not going to be able to link that suffering to anything specific that you have done. There are times when suffering comes from the hand of God and there's no connection whatsoever to sin. Suffering and trials may be unrelated to chastisement, yet still part of the all things that God is working together for good in your life. And we need to understand this. We need to understand this for ourselves when we suffer, and we need to understand it when our brethren suffer. We cannot be like Job's friends and immediately jump to conclusions. Oh, well, they're going through this as a result of some sin in their life. That, that's, God chastises Job's friends. That was a wrong assessment. God rebukes them for it. We often, too, make similar assessments. We need to keep Psalm 44 in mind, lest you think humanity has so much control. Since the psalm was written as a corporate lament, how do we apply this corporately as a church body? Well, there are going to be times in any church body that is, a church is going to suffer. When one member in the body suffers, the whole church suffers. There are going to be times when, as a, as a body, we're going to go through seasons of trial. I think of the last three years following COVID, 
what a challenge that was to God's people and to local churches, including our own. And we could look around and see God blessing and new people coming in and there's growth in this church and it's exciting to see. But every church is going to be faced with challenges. And when you face those challenges, you might, like the psalmist, say, Lord, are we not doing things right? Are we not a faithful church? Lord, we center on the gospel. We preach, preach Christ here every Sunday. We seek to honor you in our worship. And yet, you send people elsewhere. Why is it, Lord? Why? Why can a church spend their entire year, our entire yearly budget on just their sound system? And we're here and we're struggling to, to pay the pastor. Have we not been faithful, Lord? We just want to honor you. We want to see people grow in our church. If we've been worshiping a false god of this world, you would know it surely. That would be a corporate lament paralleling this psalm. The answer is many are the afflictions of the righteous. There are times when Christian churches go through seasons of suffering and leanness simply because they are faithful. And there will ever be that temptation, brethren, don't fall for it, but there will ever be that temptation to get your eyes to look at those large numbers of gatherings and covet their ease. That's why you need to have a biblically robust theology of suffering. It's the only way to process personal trials and corporate trials. Fourthly, fourth point of application. God-ordered suffering must have a place in our theology. Psalm 44, Job, Ecclesiastes are all in the canon of Scripture because the reality of such disappointments in our lives and, and believers in every age who can never say they've been through a season where they felt abandoned or forsaken by God. This has a legitimate place in the canon of Scripture because it has a legitimate place in the life of every believer. The book of Job is in the canon of Scripture for a reason. And it's not ultimately about why the righteous suffer, but it's that the righteous suffer. Raising the deeper question, how do the righteous keep worshiping God as they suffer? Brethren, this is a text that you can run to when you feel weak, when you feel forsaken, when, when you experience a loss in your life and there seems to be no explanation for it. It, it has to be okay. You're not always going to be able to figure out what God is doing in every situation. We try, but we're not always going to know. We need to have room in our theology for a God who acts sovereignly in the distribution of all of his gifts, including suffering. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is a sovereign God. He works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Some will suffer less. Some will suffer more all according to his decree. There's not always going to be a direct connection. And you need to accept this, and you need to accept this like Job accepted it, 
and come out worshiping God. Again, I ask you, I challenge you, is there room in your theology for a God like this so that you can come out like Job and say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or like the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace who were commanded to bow down before the idol. They said, we believe God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, king, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. In other words, even if we're martyred, we're not going to bow to these idols. Is that your God, I ask you? You need to have that God. You need that. You, you, so many just like a God that they could pack nicely into their own understanding. God will not fit into your own understanding. Because that God will be no comfort to you when reality hits. When you're diagnosed with cancer. When your family member dies. When your child disappoints you. When you feel right, rejected by God and there's no apparent reason for it. The God of the prosperity gospel, the God of religion, is no help to you. But this is your God, the God of Scripture, the God of Psalm 44. And the psalmist has no fear here, ruining God's reputation. Remember, it's not ultimately the sons of Korah who wrote Psalm 44. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of Psalm 44, and he has no trouble writing this about himself. Because ultimately, understanding suffering serves the kingdom of God by leading us to Christ. It takes us past the nation. It takes us past the martyrs, and it puts us to the cross, where we have a suffering servant who was put on the cross, who was truly the only innocent one, the only righteous one. And that changes everything. No longer are we under this package of works righteousness. In the new covenant, we're set free from the law of sin and death. So very quickly in closing, I want to show you what the new covenant does to Psalm 44. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. False religions, prosperity gurus, this world, Satan, are all preaching to you that suffering is getting in the way of your happiness. That you need to flee from suffering. Your works righteousness, instructed conscience is preaching to you. You're suffering because of some sin. But in the cross, brothers and sisters, in the cross, suffering is your battle scar. It's your purple heart. It's the price of being identified with Christ. Suffering is the cost of following Christ. Look at what happens to Psalm 44. Romans 8, verse 16. This is, I'm, I'm reading some verses leading up to where Paul quotes from Psalm 44. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Verse, go down to verse 22. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, verse 24. Go down to verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things... What things? Those suffering that he just talked about. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written. And here is the quote. Verse 22 of Psalm 44, quoted in, Psalm, in Romans 8.36. Tribulation, distress, persecution... Are these things going to separate us as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But notice now. Notice what the new covenant does. Notice what the cross does to this verse. When Paul quotes Psalm 44, he does so not with the despair of a lost nation. Look what the new covenant does to suffering. You're led like sheep to the slaughter. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. That is something, brothers and sisters, that they did not have that you have in Christ. It's something that every religion of this world lacks, but you have it as Christians. You who have been declared righteous on the basis of the finished work of Christ will suffer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. There's a grand purpose in suffering that's revealed to us in the new covenant. That it is for your good, that it is conforming you to the image of Christ. By, it builds faith, it builds hope. Brother, sister, your suffering is not chance. It is for God's sake. And it lies in a perfect balance in the perfect hands of a perfect God. And part of what it means to be God-like, Christ-like, is to understand this. And Psalm 44 offers us that opportunity to transform what others may count as meaningless misfortune in your life. You have it as an opportunity to glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us much in these words of the ancient singers of Israel. Given us much to consider today about your character, your nature, your goodness and grace and mercy, and how you work in a fallen world. Forgive us, Lord, for so often 
we see suffering and we immediately want to tie it to something of earth. And, and there are times it is, but there are times when it's not. And you are just working out your sovereign plan in the world. And in a fallen world, it, it, it involves suffering. And sometimes we're the ones who suffer. We may never understand it, Lord, but help us to be like Job. Help us to be a people like Job who would say, though you slay me, I will still trust in you. Help us, Lord God, that when we suffer on this earth, that you, the God of all grace, would be exalted, that we would glorify you, that our, that our suffering and pain would not be meaningless, that our suffering and pain would not lead us to a bitter spirit, but lead us to glorify you. We ask it, Father, in Christ's name and for his glory's sake. Amen.